The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Taz, Anthony Tazkel, author of the Insight book, Enhancing Your Creativity by Learning to See Things Differently. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you find it insightful. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Anthony Taz Tazgal to talk about his newest book, The Insight Book, Enhancing Your Creativity by Learning to See Things Differently, published by Lid Publishing. Taz is a man of many lanyards, Trainer, author, speaker, brand, and communication strategist, and lecturer. He is a course director for the Chartered Institute of Marketing, the Marketing Research Society, the Institute of Internal Communication, and the Civil Service College. He is a global speaker and regularly reviews the papers and contributes on marketing and communication subjects on talk TV. His area of expertise includes storytelling, behavioral economics, incitement, and as a lapsed classicist, he also indulges in etymology and Homer. No! Not that Homer. He also runs the Guardian Masterclass on harnessing the power of storytelling and is a brand ambassador for the Homegrown Club in London, which is London's leading business club. If it were not so, I would have told you. He is the author of the award-winning... The Storytelling Book, Finding the Golden Thread in Your Communications, published in 2016. The Inspiratorium, A Space for the Curious, 2018. Incitations, Discovering a World of Inspiration Through Quotes, Words, and Expressions, published in 2020. And The Storytelling Workbook, A Nine-Week Program to Tell Your Story, published in 2022. And interesting fact, he is a graduate of the University of Oxford, home of the Fighting Oxen. Anthony, congratulations on the Insight Book, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Uh, Thank you, Douglas, and thank you to your sound effects as well. And may I call you Taz? Please do call me Taz, Douglas. Okay, very good. So just a curious uh, curiosity, uh, if I were able to get past security at the Homegrown Club in London, and I mentioned your name, what are my chances of getting half-price drinks? Um, if you really want a cup of tea half price, I, I'm sure I can guarantee you that. Oh, they don't serve alcohol there? Uh, they do serve alcohol, but obviously, um, you know, being English, um, we are 90%, our body is 90% tea. <laughs> so there is some alcohol available if you ask really nicely. Oh, wow. You know, and this wasn't in your bio, but I should congratulate you 
in 2019, LinkedIn added a you know response. It wasn't just like, but they also added the insightful <laughs> response, and that was largely your doing. Congratulations. It was. I had to write an entire book for them to do it, so perhaps it wasn't yeah. worth it in the end, but well, there you go. Uh, it, it just amongst uh, marketing podcast listeners, it's not the insightful button; it's the Taz button. So there you uh, go. Yeah, thank you. My own button. Yeah, and uh, speaking of uh, your own button, your own company, you are also the uh, the founder and uh, owner of uh, Tazgal, Australia's best selling leggings and women's activewear brand. It's funny you should say that because um, having started off in ad agencies, I just found it all a bit mundane. So um, I thought Australia would be a good place to set up um, a, a lingerie company. Uh, also, also Tazgal is in fact a brand of beer. Uh, it's a, I think it's actually Gaelic for Hammer of the Gods. Wow! So um, these are all things which have my name on, uh, but just for legal purposes, um, I have absolutely no interest in. <laughs> okay. Wow! A beer is named after you. Yeah. Boy, ah. it's a Scottish beer as well, Douglas. So ah. If anyone's listening from Scotland, uh, I can have a chat with you about. We chat with you about the beer. Oh, excellent! Well, I do have listeners in uh, Scotland, and uh, I've actually interviewed uh, a couple authors from there. So that's great. You know, um, now let me just look look at the book here. I want to read uh, actually from the back of the back of the book. You, uh, it says, "Information is to be collected, insight is to be connected." More than ever, businesses crave new ideas, new ways of seeing, of changing their companies, and of being more creative. In a drip world, data-rich, insight-poor. Insight is at the heart of transformation, a new currency everyone wants to buy into. The Insight Book is an entertaining and enlightening guide to understanding and deploying insight to see things differently, to build a culture of insight using brand case studies and a variety of definitions and perspectives from art, science, and marketing. And we'll talk about a number of those points and also... I saw that Rory Sutherland uh, endorsed the book, and I've had the honor of interviewing him about his book, Alchemy. Yep. And he wrote a witty and insightful read and a long overdue counterpoint to the ludicrous all you need is data mantra, which pollutes our thinking. <laughs> well done. Well I, done. Thank you. I know Rory quite well. We overlapped for quite a while uh, in the advertising business when he was a sort of humble copywriter. Oh, uh, was that an Ogilvy? Yeah, at Ogilvy. Yeah, oh, okay. I freelance for at Ogilvy. He's now vice chair, and I've gone off to do other things as well. But you reminded me, actually, um, he owes me lunch. So. Oh, yeah. So, uh, well, anything I can do to you know help get you guys back together. Uh, I'm a uniter, Absolutely. not a divider. But also, on his Wikipedia page, I believe it says that he started out at Ogilvy, and he was the worst account executive <laughs> in the history of the agency or something like that, which I yeah. thought, wow, you know, go big or go home, right? Yeah, it's interesting actually because um, one of the things we may get onto uh, when we actually start is yeah, we're not we're not recording yet. Yeah, go ahead. It's fine. Let's let's just throw this around. Uh, one of the key things in my book is the idea of serendipity. I'm a great believer that this what I call the data rich insight poor world, uh -huh. the obsession with fact and causality and everything happening linearly. Insight is, is the opposite of that. Insight is when things collide and combine and new things happen. So for, for Rory, it was discovering that he was, in fact, and I can legitimately verify this, the world's worst uh, account manager. Um, for me, it was finding out that I may become a classicist and an academic, but I'll give it six months in advertising 
uh, and that was 40 years ago. Ah. So um, I'm a great believer that often you – I don't want to get too sort of, you know, spiritual or fridge magnet about it. But I do think these ideas of, of things happening by serendipity and you finding new ideas and avenues is actually one of the interesting areas of insight. Oh, absolutely. We'll talk about that. I want to jump to Chapter 4 to tackle some definitions because my mm-hmm. sense is that everyone hears the word insights. Uh, a lot of people use it incorrectly or simply don't really understand what it means, particularly as it relates to your book. And you write on page 25, insight is something that everyone wants, but hardly anyone understands. (laughs) So what is an insight? I thought I would start off with that because I know it's quite a sweeping statement. But my background, and I think, you know, you share the background, Douglas, as well, and we talked about it. My background is ad agencies. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time as an account planner, strategist, working with brands, trying to come up with new ideas, new positionings, strategies that would be interesting and innovative, uh, helping the agency to win a pitch. And then suddenly people would use this word insight and they would say, we need an insight for our brand. We need a, a new way of positioning it so that people will see it differently and they'll buy more of our brand than the competitive brand. And it became one of those words that just almost like emerged out of nowhere um, as if the research or the marketing industry had invented it, mm-hmm. which I think if you're, I don't know, Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci or Isaac Newton, you might feel a little bit aggrieved, really. <laughs> um, so I, I thought, actually, what is this thing called insight? Why are people giving it to me? Research companies were saying, oh, here's a page of insights. And I would say, well, I think they're just bits of data or they're just statements you've made. Oh, no, they're insights. And I kept thinking, well, how do we agree what an insight is? So... One of the things I talk a lot about in the book, first of all, is what it isn't. Mm-hmm. And I think what an insight isn't is just something that people say or a bit of data or an observation, which doesn't have any sort of implication. So I think there's an example I use, and this is, again, when I was a planning director, um, you know, a baby planner I was working with gave me this. You know, most juices taste bland and dull and consumers know it. They're crying out for a new taste sensation that will surprise and excitement, excite them. And I, that's... That's not even an observation. That's just a very bland, puffery piece of puffery, really. So for me, understanding what an insight isn't is quite easy. Another thing it isn't. And is it too early to get into some etymology, Douglas? No, but, you know, uh, there was one uh, well-turned phrase of many in the book, and you talked about advertising uh, often had a lot of immodest boasting. (laughs) I loved that. (laughs) It's still very present with a lot of marketing communications. Immodest boasting. It is. I mean, it sort of comes with the territory, I think. Yeah. I think, you know, if you look up humble advertising on Google, it's probably not that many <laughs> entries. Zero um, results, right. Zero results. You have found no results. <laughs> um, so, with a bit of etymology, because anyone who knows me or reads the books or comes to my talks, no, it takes me about three and a half minutes before I'm starting on etymology and one of the interesting bits because i think etymology is fascinating about where words come from and and the hidden meanings so one of the things i'll say about insight is in the olden days you know again you're probably roughly the same sort of geological era as i am Mm -hmm. um we would talk about conclusions so often reports would say here are the conclusions and if you look at the etymology of that it comes from the latin word meaning to shut or close or end So here's one way that I like to think about an insight. So a conclusion is the end of something, but an insight is the beginning of something. Mm -hmm. So an insight should begin 
a journey. It should open up your eyes to something new, a new way of positioning your brand, a new way of creating a a distinction, distinctiveness for your for your product, a, a new idea that the ad agency or the comms people can work on. So again, it's not just the end of something, it's the start of something, and it's the start of something that makes you see things differently. So I've sort of segued there subtly, Douglas, from what it isn't to sort of what it is. Yeah, but let me add to that on page 31, you write, an insight is a jumping off point. It's a platform for new ways of thinking to be developed and implemented. Oh, I agree with that. Who wrote yeah, that? Yeah, a very that's, smart that's, guy. I think he's one of those uh, one of those fighting oxen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, it is the, it is the starting point. So uh, again, you read the the thing on the back page, which is one of my sort of mantras, um, and I've I've yet to get any client that I work with to actually make it a t shirt slogan. The information is to be collected, but insight is to be connected. Yes. So if anyone's listening and wants to buy, you know, job a lot of t-shirts, uh, let me know. <laughs> right. So right. for me, insight is about making new connections. Um, so again, sort of veering into the slightly more serious point. One of the things I was enjoyed about working as a planner in agencies, you'd, you'd work on a variety of accounts. So uh, in one era that I worked, I would work on Peugeot cars, Cadbury chocolate, Evian water, and I'd work for a charity um, in the dis- disability area. Very, very different areas. But what it does is it allows your brain to make different jumps and different connections, mainly unconsciously, which we'll get onto later, I'm sure. And it's those sorts of connections that your brain looks for, the sort of patterns that it sees, that again, for me, are one of the ways that insight happens. Yes, and to make sure it's not just two uh, older ad guys talking, we should probably explain what a a planner is at an agency. Yes, so again, for those of you who haven't watched Mad Men, um, or even if you have watched Mad Men, actually you should I'm watch not sure. Mad Men. I think we should make it compulsory. Yes, uh, and actually I don't recall them having planners. No, they didn't. I think they had researchers because Dichter, who I think was the German guy, came over and set up qualitative research, <laughs> uh, which is another topic which we can probably get to uh, if we stay here for another three hours. <laughs> um, but it, the way that agencies were sort of formulated in the 80s, it's specifically from the UK, but then we exported it um, in a less destructive way than we normally do with the empire. Um, we created the idea that there should be a role that is somewhere between account directors whose job is, by and large, to sit there and pour Perrier for clients. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was sarcastic. Any account directors listening? I In our case, it was usually scotch, but yeah. Scotch, okay, yeah, yeah, or Perrier. Other, other soft drinks are available. <laughs> um, and the creatives. The idea was that two agencies in London, one called J. Walter Thompson, one called BMP, both had the idea in different ways that there should be a new function. Someone who was involved in all the research and understood the consumer and would then play that back to creative people to make sure that their creative ideas were more in line with what consumers actually wanted. Mm-hmm. And that name, I won't go through the history of it, ended up being called account planning. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a sort of bridge, if you like, between clients and the creatives, but also, if you like, the, the agency team and creatives. And that's what I always found fascinating, understanding why people choose, why they decide what they decide, again, what is now generally known as behavioral economics. Um, But that's also where, as I said, I got into this whole area of actually, if we have to deliver insight to creative people, what exactly is this insight that we're delivering? Yes. And when I was working at Jay Walter in in New York, uh, starting out in the late 80s, uh, there was a joke amongst the agencies that you don't really have 
a real planner unless they have a British accent. <clears throat> Absolutely. Right. Um, yeah, it, as I say, it was a slightly strange thing. I decided not to. I took the decision to stay in London and have children, which I don't know, maybe I could have gone to the States and been incredibly uh, famous. But um, but no, it was one of the things. And I think there are, it's, it has been successfully exported as a function. So, um, well, as well, I say, and, and with to- good reason. It's. I, I still think that too many companies are not thinking about the customer yeah. or what the customer is thinking. But those that do are always more successful. It's it's a yeah, soapbox I, mean, I stand yeah. on often on this show. No, you're absolutely right. And I think anyone in, mar- in marketing, um, I'm, I'm always slightly averse. And again, if you read one of the books, the storytelling book, I have a big go against jargon. Um, <laughs> jargon is, is God the bless enemy. you. <laughs> Thank, I'm not. I'm not the only one, but it's a mission, and it's a, a it's a, you know a thing I'll die on. Um, and I don't particularly like the word customer centricity because that's that's really the same as marketing. But the idea is is absolutely core, which is unless you understand, and you don't have to necessarily listen to what consumers say, but at least have to understand it. Unless you do that you're at risk of just going completely, you know, off brief and creating something or creating a campaign that's going to fail. So again, insight for me, that's one of the areas that I sort of take for granted, really, in the composition of insight, which is understanding as much as you can about your audience and what they want. (laughs) Yes. It'll always be a good idea to keep reminding people, uh, businesses to do that. But again, there's just a dearth of uh, insights about customers uh, in, in much of the business yeah. world. So let's jump to, uh, there are a number of things you don't like. Uh, so this is <laughs> this may turn into the, uh, uh, what grinds Taz's gears? Uh, and I want to mm. I want to jump to a few things specifically uh, in the book, because there may be some folks thinking, yeah, okay, I got it. I got an insight, insight. Well, hang on, folks. You write on page four, and this kind of harkens back to Rory's quote about data, where you say, everywhere you look in the business world, insight has taken on the aura of an elusive holy grail. Research departments have rebranded themselves as insight departments, while conferences and events dedicated to understanding and promulgating insight have sprung up globally, promising new generations of practitioners that they can grow up learning what it is and how to spot or discover it. There's been greater focus on insight with the advent of, wait for it, (laughs) big data, essentially the concept of crunching lots of data. So, uh, Taz, shouldn't that in and of itself give us insight in droves? You think it would, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, by the way, for just for the international audience, uh, I'm English, so it's data. You're American, so it's data. And if we've got any Aussies listening, it's data. <laughs> okay. So, hello, Australia, and I'm sorry if we're not pronouncing it correctly. Right. Well, aren't um, we a united people divided by a common language? Di- yeah. Divided by a common language. One of, no, one of my rants, and it is, it is a serious point, is um, I can tell my children, my, my, one of my children, my daughter works in market research, and I can tell my children, I used to work, sound like sort of, you know, Papa Smurf here, I used to work in an era when we didn't have enough data. Can you imagine that, boys and girls? And now, of course, we're drowning in it. Mm-hmm. But my serious point is even though we are absolutely overwhelmed with data, I don't think we've become any better at finding insight. Because I think it's not simply a matter of volume and quantity. That's the point I make in the book. Insight is is an approach. It's an attitude. And however much data you consume, it it isn't a guarantee that uh, an insight will pop out 
readily at the other end. And the rest of the book really is an attempt to say to people why insight is really about creativity. So data is part of that. And there is a quote that I use um, from an American theorist from the 60s called Theodore Rorschach, who says actually quite controversially that information doesn't create ideas. Ideas create information. In other words, you won't necessarily create you know, a new, an Apple or a Facebook or a Threads or whatever based on in, uh, information. Those things come from new ideas and new connections and thoughts. But once you have those new ideas, that creates information. So part of what I'm trying to do, perhaps subtly in the book, is just sever that um, umbilical cord between data and insight. And my view, and it is a controversial view, especially for people in the research industry, who've sort of colonized insight. They've taken it as their own. But my view is it isn't necessarily the case that uh, that insight has to come from data. That's that's my perhaps provocative point of view, Douglas. Well, let me add to that. You you write on page 16, the market research industry seems to have colonized and appropriated mm. the territory of insights for better or worse. It is now a given that you can't have insights without research data. Uh, you want to write largely overnight, the research industry managed to reframe and rebrand itself as the insight industry. <laughs> but the research industry remains relatively ill-equipped to fulfill its promise. Why are they ill-equipped. I'm now slightly worried I'm going to get death threats um, from market researchers listening to this. So can I just say I come in peace? Okay. Uh, my daughter works in market research. My wife is an ex-market researcher. And as a planner, I constantly use research. So please go gentle. Right. Um, but it's like again. so many things where like if you looked on LinkedIn right now, everyone is suddenly an AI expert. And oh, a year ago, everyone was that. an expert on the metaverse, right? Yes. So it's like the yeah. insight thing. It's just... It, you know, it, it seems to be rhyming. Yeah. But again, what you've done, I think, Douglas, you touched on one of my central, um, can I say threads without being sued by Facebook? <laughs> um, one of my central threads, because um, I do talk about the golden thread. One of my books, as you mentioned, is subtitled The Golden Thread. So anytime Zuckerberg wants to pay me royalties, um, that's fine. Um, but no, the, the, one of the points I, I do make, and it is, again, it's it's not a diatribe against the research industry, but it's based on my experience of working with them over the last 10, 20, 30 years, is they've got to realize that just coming equipped with 100 slides of data, that's not what I want. And I don't think it's what clients want. What clients want is action. They want ideas. And they want, let's use the word insight. What do I do now that is different, that will help my brand, that will change my brand, that will change my target audience's behavior, etc.? So my my sort of instruction, that's a bit harsh, my, my recommendation for the research industry is to get more creative and understand, as I say, it's not simply the quantity of what they produce that matters. It's actually the quality of the ideas, the recommendations and the actions that they need to take. And that's where I'm looking at helping them understand what insight is and how to produce it. Mm. Let's jump to another term you introduce in the book, uh, defensive decision making. <laughs> mm. Explain what that is and how yeah. insight it can be an essential corrective. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to give due credit. That that was coined by a man called Gerd Gigerenza, mm-hmm. um, who's a behavioral economist in uh, Berlin in Germany. And um, he talks about decision-making as becoming if, if effectively more and more defensive. And that's what I think data has done. 
Now, there's a word that I use in the book and I use in all my books because I just love using it. Um, and I think to his credit, Rory's um, re uh, referred to it in alchemy. Uh, the word is arithmocracy. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm sorry. It's a the arithmocracy. Background. I thought you were going to say Arith infatuation, which was another infatuation one. Infatuation is another one. Yeah. Can we just keep them? I don't want to just, you know. <laughs> Use them up because your audience will get, you know, there are, there's so many of these words, Douglas. Yes, but yes. Arith democracy is, is something I, I've written about for 20 years. So I, I think, and again, it goes back to your um, point about big data. We're living in a system which has become obsessed with numbers and measurement and KPIs and metrics. I was in Barcelona with a client a couple of weeks ago, um, and now it's OKRs, objectives and key results. Now, Again, I know I'm pushing again. I mean, like King Canute here, trying to push the waters back. So I, 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 I get what I'm doing here. We're not ever going to roll back KPIs and metrics completely. But I just think the balance has now, for me, got slightly out of kilter. There is so much obsession with numbers and data and metrics that we've forgotten the other part of what it is to work in communication or to be a human being, which is storytelling and emotion. So those I mentioned, you mentioned, I think, in your intro, the three areas that uh, I find interesting, behavioral economics, storytelling and insight. So all of them are playing together. And for me, they're all a necessary corrective to this obsession, obsession of arithmocracy and in factuation. The idea that all you have to do is put facts on a chart or put facts in your advertising or communication and people will lap it up and listen to you and do exactly what you want, which just isn't the case. But we've created this system and it's become sort of self-reinforcing in government and in private sector of just creating vast troughs of information for people to sort of sup from. And it doesn't work. We know it doesn't work because we've got the evidence. So again, throughout all my books, I'm trying to fight this sort of arithmocracy and just move the pendulum a little bit more to some of these human areas like emotion and story. I want to jump to uh, chapter three where you write, excuse me while I continue to quote from your book, but it's fun. It's fine. Yes. I can take it. Monetization, trusted partner, reaching out, granularity, C-suite, <laughs> maybe even purpose. Yes. All terms yeah. that I would argue now fit into the handy compartment known as meaningless jargon or cliche. Or there's mm -hmm. value proposition, or uh, dare I say uh, it, engagement, which I find uh, too abstract, cold, and inhuman to be of any lasting use. And then you write, does insight itself fit into this pantheon of the inane? What are the ways th that insight is being uh, misused? I know you talked about you know, presenting 100 pages of data, but are, how else is insight being misused so that the listeners can start to detect mm. it? Um, I'll give you one example. Um, I won't name them for obvious reasons because uh, their lawyers are bigger than my lawyers. Um, but there's a company I did some work for a few years ago, quite a lot of work for actually, um, based in here over in the UK and in the US. And they wanted to turn their reports uh, into more insight-driven analysis. So they said, come along, train our people and also help us write insights. So I said, fine. And then one person, and again, please God, they're not listening here, um, said in a meeting, okay, so I think we need at least a page of insights for every report. And I said, sorry. And I said, yeah, we needed like a page, maybe 15 to 20. And I said, I, I, I think you're missing. If you think that's what we're producing here, you're clearly missing what an insight actually is. 
you can't have 15 insights from one report. I don't know how many insights I've come up with in my career, but relatively few. They are very hard to create. So one of the things I think that's happened is that, can I use the word reification? Is it too early in the day for that? <laughs> um, it's the idea that you take well, something Well, it is the cocktail abstract. hour in England, isn't it? It is. That's right. I okay. should be sitting here with my pims <laughs> and my champagne and, and toasting the king. Um, but it's the idea that you turn something into sort of something real and, and a fact. So for me, insight, I like talking about what an insight is as an abstract, an idea, and how to create it. But you can't say I'm going to create 15 insights. I'll tell you a story about one of my kids. Okay. Uh, he's the one who's moved out, so he won't be listening to this anyway. So Don't worry, uh, Taz, no one's probably listening at this point. No, so. I hope there are some people. But if you're listening, Zach, um, it's all my fault. Um, so when he was very young, he did philosophy, religion, and ethics, by the way. You need to know this about uh, my son. Is he a fighting oxen? Uh, no, he did, he went to another uni- he went to A and R the university. It's fine. It's, other universities are available, um, but it's just an example. Um, as I say, he did philosophy, religion, and ethics. So he's the sort of person where you say, "Zach, can you pass the salt?" And he'll say, "What's wrong with the, the pepper?" So that's the way that that he thinks. But um, when he was young, um, one day he said to me, "Dad, where are you going today?" And I, because obviously I freelance, I go all over the place. Um, so I said, "I'm going to something called the Insights Show." which was like an exhibition for research companies and insight providers in London. So he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the insight show. And he paused and said, oh, can you bring me back some? And the point is, it's, they're not like they're not things that you can just like turn into. It's, it's slightly more com- complicated. They're not handing them out at the trade show booth? They're not handing. It's not like, you know, buy one insight, get one free. Special <laughs> offer today. Spin the wheel. Spin the well, and I do worry that again they've been turned into these sort of commodities. I know there are an awful lot of people, some people actually in in the ad world, some planners who would actually banish insight completely. And I mention it in the book. Who just think it's become a bit of jargon. It's become like a commoditized way of talking about what planners should produce. Mm-hmm. I can see, I can see some value. I I don't actually a hundred percent agree with it because I'm. I think it's it's a concept we should keep, but we should just refine. But I do get the point when clients say to me, oh, we need three insights or 10 insights, and can you produce them by Thursday at two? If you say that, then I think you really are you know, barking up the wrong tree, mm-hmm. if that's a metaphor that was used outside of the UK. I don't know. No, it's uh, it's 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 worldwide. Let's talk Good. about – you've got a lot of case studies in the book. I wondered mm. if we could pick out a few um, – Perhaps some that the American audience is going to know. They're going to know more about Starbucks than yes. Marmite, let's say. Yes. Um, yes. Talk about uh, let's talk about Starbucks. What was the insight that led to their uh, dramatic growth with uh, Howard Schultz? Yeah, that was a really fascinating one, and it's there are a number of insights uh, stories that I give in in the book as a sort of case case study section. So again, any any lawyers, stray lawyers listening, um, it's the idea that if you like, the case studies actually help you understand the, the concept of the law, but they help you understand what an insight is. So the Starbucks one, which again, um, you know, most hopefully listeners will be familiar with, was based on a piece of sort of sociological analysis at the time. Um, there was a sociologist and he talked about the idea that there was a third place he looked at the way that America was changing in the sort of 80s and 90s and uh, uh, sort of earlier than that, actually. And 
what he found out, a sociologist called Roy Oldenburg, and he talked about a book in 1989 called The Great Good Place. And he said there are two places, basically, that we understand the home, which is the first place, and work, which is the second place. And his argument was really about American society and how it was becoming very isolated and atomized. And there was another book by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. Mm-hmm. And both of these people came to the same conclusion, which was we needed more communal spaces where people could get together and share and talk and engage in all sorts of cultural and artistic discussions. Um, And the coffee house has a great history of that. Again, in the book, I mentioned the fact that actually that is the history of the coffee house. Uh, In the UK, for example, we have the Royal Society for Arts, Manufacturing and Commerce, the RSA, which actually originated as a coffee house in the 18th century. So it always been this link as coffee houses as being places where let's be honest, generally aristocratic males, and we'll get together and discuss the issues of the day. So what Schultz said is, let's create that third place. And it wasn't about the quality of the product. Uh, It wasn't how great the coffee was. It was about the experience. It was about creating this third place. And for me, that is an insight because it's a completely way, a different way of configuring the way that that market had previously been sort of aligned saying okay it's not about what we say it's actually the experience that we create the space that we create the opportunity that we create and one of the ways i find um and i haven't talked about this yet but i'll come on to it if that's okay Um, when i talk about defining insight um it's easy to come up with definitions that are factual and rational what an insight is or what it does But as with the Starbucks example, I often think a really good example, a really good way of demonstrating what insight is, is is by showing how it makes you feel. Mm. So if I've told you that story about Starbucks, any of you are going, oh, okay, that's quite, that's the feeling of an insight. And I do quote, I'm going to jump all over the place, if that's all right, Douglas. Um, I do quote Isaac Asimov who any of you listening, you might have heard of him as a famous scientist, but also a science fiction writer. He wrote iRobot. Again, for younger viewers, that's a book, not the film with Will Smith. Um, and also Foundation and Empire. And he has this great quote, which I lavish praise on all, all the time. He says, when scientists come up with something new, they don't go Eureka. They go, that's funny. Yes. And that's for me at the core, at the heart of what an insight is, how it makes you feel. So if when I'm telling you the story of Starbucks or Sony Bravia or Marmite or whatever it is, if you go, okay, that's funny. I hadn't thought of it. I hadn't seen it that way. That for me is what an insight should feel like. So again, when I'm talking to researchers, data providers, data squirrels, I'll say to them, that's what I want you to make me feel. Make me feel I'm going, okay, that's funny. I hadn't thought of it. Like, I hadn't seen it that way before. If you're doing that, you're on the right road. Oh, interesting. Actually, mm. uh, talk about the Snickers. That that seems like a great segue. <laughs> um, I should say that I worked for many years. Uh, I think I mentioned it in the UK on Cadbury. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So if you cut me through, I'm 80% chocolate. <laughs> um, I, I love confectionery probably too much. Um but Mars Wrigley. But it was all um, part of research that you were doing. For oh, clients. absolutely! It was all. It was all. Yeah. Um, if there's time, I can tell you my uh, my chocolate Christmas chocolate story. <laughs> okay. Remind me later. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is f- fascinating because uh, there is a famous paper. If you are interested in behavioral economics, um, as I am, um, 
there's a famous paper and it's really about, again, one of the areas in which we think that we are in control of our decisions, but we're not. So an awful lot of the, the behavioral economics enterprise is the fact that many decisions that we think we are making consciously are happening unconsciously. They're driven by our emotions. They're driven by social factors. But one of the other things that drives our, our um, decisions is our body chemistry. And there is a famous paper delightfully called Extraneous Factors in Judicial Decisions, <laughs> which sounds very dry, doesn't it? Yeah, you could almost uh, make a lawyer joke there. You can make a lawyer joke. Um, but it's about academics who analysed judges' verdicts. Because we expect judges to be, you know, objective and neutral and not to be affected by anything other than those factors. So what they did was they looked at a whole series of judgments by judges and they, they took out all the other variables. So they tried to sort of control for the type of defendant, their age, their ethnicity, their previous convictions, the type of crime they were uh, being charged with. They took all of those things out and you'd expect all the judges to give the same verdict or the same sentencing, wouldn't you? We would hope. We would hope. But guess what? There was an enormous variation. And the one variable that was left was time of day. And what they found out, and again, you might have heard this because it's uh, hungry judges. First thing in the morning, judges would give a much less severe sentence for the same crime. As it gets towards lunch, that sentencing gets more and more severe. After lunch, it goes down again. And as it gets to the end of the day, it goes up. Why? Because it's about food and energy and hunger and willpower. And the less willpower we have and the more hungry you feel, the worse decisions we make. Hence the word hangry for any young people listening. And that was the insight. And I think it is an insight that Mars Wrigley leapt upon and turned into their Snickers campaign, you're not you when you're hungry. So whether it's Starbucks and positioning the whole brand or whether it's Snickers and a particular campaign, again, those are really, for me, very enlightening examples of what insight can do to either create or reinforce your brand or create a new campaign, which in the Snickers case was enormously successful. Yes. And Let's just talk about one more that I found mm. very interesting, and I didn't know that uh, this had happened, but that's the Old Spice brand, which seems to yeah. have come back from the dead years ago. Yeah, that's a really interesting one, because um, I think probably globally, really, but certainly in the UK anyway, it was it was considered very old-fashioned. Um, uh, there was some music, and it's called D-A-Z-R-I, very classical music. There was lots of waves, and it was a very, very typical hunky male coming out of the sea or actually attractive woman coming out of the sea and the bat the brand had basically been dying so what did what did they do it was procter and gamble what they did was actually completely rework the brand so one of the things that they did was change the targeting so rather than targeting the user men who use these products they actually targeted the buyers who were predominantly women, so girlfriends, wives, perhaps mothers. Mm -hmm. So the whole ad with that guy coming out, this is how this is how your man could smell, was targeted at women and was targeted at the buyers of the brand. So that was the first thing that was enormously insightful, was to, to completely change the targeting. And the second thing, 
And it's one of the things I talk an awful lot about, Douglas, and I did a training day on it yesterday, is tone of voice. Uh, one of the things, one of my grand statements, are we ready for a grand statement? <laughs> um, Don't hold I back. Talk about the whole, yeah, exactly. We've only got three hours left. So um, one of my grand statements which is about content and storytelling, which is we spend way too much time in our business thinking about content, what we say, but nowhere near enough time thinking about form, how we say it. Mm. And I'll just, I'm just going to let that pause happen to, to, so people can take it in. We spend an awful lot of time coming up with content and messages and facts. But as human beings, how a message is conveyed is almost important, as important. So brand personality, character. We talk about characters and stories, don't we? Mm -hmm. Character, tone of voice, personality. They are incredibly important in how brands and communication works. And I just don't think we give that enough credit. So one of the things that they did with, with Old Spice P&G was change the personality, which was very serious and worthy and masculine and macho. And they made it much more light and fun and tongue in cheek. And I think that's also part of what made that campaign so successful. I loved it. I thought it was so funny. And I can remember, I think at one point, this must have been 15 years ago or, or more, but they did uh, the commercials, and I can't remember the, the name of the actor, but he was on a horse, and he would say, yes. women, look at your man, now look back at me. Me, and now look at your man. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. But and she that, was that sharing is, it with me. Yeah, that absolutely right. So, yeah, it, and it was at enormously successful, because one of the things that I think, I don't know if we're taking for granted here. Um, is all of the insights that I've talked about, and they're very varied. I've got some British ones. I've got a French one. Mm -hmm. um, the whole point about them is that they have been successful. They've, they've actually led to brands being repositioned. They've led to brands being reimagined re, uh, re or renovated. And, and that, for me, is, is part of what an insight should be, unless, unless it's actually leading to something actionable in a business sense. It's not an insight. And again, going back to where we started, you know, a few minutes or half an hour ago, for me, an insight is only an insight if it's actioned. Otherwise, it's just, you know, something that someone has pointed out or observed. Once it's become actioned and turned into something that is real and commercial, then it becomes an insight. Very well said. I should uh, let the listener know there are 14 Case studies in the book. It's probably the biggest section. So there's there's quite more than what we just talked about. But let's get back to what grinds uh, Taz's gears. And let's maybe upset some folks in the marketing world. Oh, yes. Yeah, controversy. Keeps, keeps, keeps the listener engaged. Let's talk about the barriers to creating a culture of insight. What is Taz's beef with the modern aegis of lean and agile? Uh, uh, a part of me dies every time I hear... Lean and agile. Now, I had to look it up because I, if I was going to rant, I wanted to at least rant from a point of, of knowledge. And I, I know lean and agile comes from software development. Right. And, and there have been books on the show about you know, yeah. agile marketing and all that sort of thing. There's plenty yeah. of folks with that in their LinkedIn profiles along with, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but explain perhaps in uh, the organization that some listeners are in where those terms are used quite a bit. It would be helpful for them to understand uh, how that culture could be counterproductive to developing insights. Yeah, I, I'm literally, as well as metaphorically, rolling up my sleeves now. 
the reason, and again, forgive me if you know I'm, I'm ranting about this. I understand where lean and agile comes from, and I understand that there is, there is a need in companies to be efficient. But firstly, lean and agile for me is just about being adaptable, and companies have always had to be adaptable. That strikes me as you know blindingly obvious. But my bigger beef, I think, with lean and agile is it's the enemy of insight. Mm. Because whenever I hear people talking about lean and agile, it seems to bring, firstly, it just brings me down a bit. It just makes me feel slightly more miserable than I was otherwise. But secondly, there's a sense that lean and agile means that we have to hunker down, that we have to concentrate on what we do, that we're going to perhaps reduce things, possibly people. And the whole point about insight, and I'm going to be absolutely clear about this, you need time and space for insight. Insight isn't a sort of lean and agile enterprise. Um, as I talk about a lot in the book, and I've mentioned it, insight is really about creativity. There's a word, and I might use it again at the end, which is time for etymology again, boys and girls. Um, error. We talk about error as being a mistake, as being bad. But if you go to the etymology of error, the Latin word errare, which we see in words like erratic, if you're driving erratically, it means to wander. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean to be wrong. It means to wander. So one of the things I think is essential to any form of creativity, of which I deem insight to be a part, is allowing people the time and space to wander. Because you can't, if everyone is just moving from one thing to another and all they have to do is produce a deck of data, you won't get that. So that's why I worry about lean and agile cultures being so impressive, having such weight on people and companies that it doesn't allow people the time and space to really be insightful. So that's really my specific issue with lean and agile. It may be about different uh, parts of the company. So maybe there are other parts where you have to have more time and space and they don't have to worry about lean and agile but other parts of the company do. But if everything has to be lean and agile, as I say, it worries me that you're creating a culture that is antithetical, really, to the idea of insight. Well, there's another interesting point you raise uh, in terms of the barriers to a culture of insight, and that is the preconceived idea that originality in all its forms must begin with knowledge. Explain that. Mm. Yeah, again, partly because I'm a classicist, there's there's all sorts of things about originality and is originality everything? Um, and it's a it's a very interesting topic, and uh, we haven't really got time for it here. But one of the things I've I'm fascinated by, and I did mention it a little bit before with that guy um, Theodore Rorschach, is the fact that knowledge is a a necessity. Understanding and facts and data are a necessity. Now, because I've worked perhaps like you, Douglas, with creative people. Um, you know that the way that they work, and again, I talk about this, there's a, a man called Graham Wallace, and I use his system in the book. And in 1926, he, he came up with this idea that there are three elements to sort of insight or creativity, and they all begin with the letter I, rather conveniently. So the first stage is immersion. And, and that is the stage where you do have to have knowledge and understanding and fact-finding. And then the third stage yeah, I know I'm jumping. The third stage is illumination, which is your insight. But what he says, and this is for me absolutely core to everything I've been saying, is you need this second stage to happen, which he calls incubation. Mm -hmm. 
And incubation is where you allow your brain, your unconscious, to just play around, have time, have space, take in other ideas which are deliberately unconnected with what you're looking at. And that's where you're unconscious in system, in behavioral economics system one terms, where your unconscious starts seeing connections and patterns. And to link both the last two things that you said, Douglas, firstly, lean and agile is, as I say, the opposite of that. But secondly, knowledge is part of it. But the, the unconscious stuff, the mingling, the incubation isn't about knowledge. It's about allowing your unconscious to see these new patterns and new connections. And there is a lovely term, again, which is not mine. I've, I've used it from taking it from somewhere else. Um, what you have to do is expose your unconscious to what are called ESIs, external serendipitous influences. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're welcome. Um, and that's why I, I like that. And I'll, again, when I'm working with clients and, and getting them to come up with insights or be more creative, whether it's throwing in random ideas, whether it's just giving them a book to read or whether it's looking through a dictionary or using film clips, you need something which just disturbs the brain from its usual paths. And makes new connections. And again, a couple of the examples, because I'm a huge movie fan. Did I mention uh, I used to be a trustee of a cinema about a mile away from where I'm looking here? Oh, that's right. Uh, what, what, which one is that? It's called the Phoenix Cinema. PhoenixCinema.co.uk, um, boys and girls. Uh, it's the oldest continually running cinema in the UK. It was built in 1910, opened in 1911, has never shut and has never been anything except a cinema. And I was a trustee for over 20 years um, until the Charity Commission said that trustee should only be a trustee for maximum of six. Um, So I'm a big film fan and I give a couple of examples of this in the book. So um, I'm a huge fan of being John Malkovich, Charlie uh, Kaufman. And he says, I had two different ideas. I was writing a script which was about getting into someone's head, a portal into someone's head. And I had another idea about two people at work having an affair. And I couldn't go anywhere with them, but I put them together accidentally put them together and that's how being John Malkovich happened. Suzanne Collins explicitly says she, one day she was watching the TV in a hotel room. One channel is showing war footage. She's flicking through another channel is showing a reality show and she puts them together and Hunger Games is born. So that whole mystical, it's not really mystical, but that whole unconscious connection Mm -hmm. area, which is what fascinates me and takes us all the way away from data and all the way away from knowledge and all the way away from lean and agile. That's some of the stuff that I find people really need to get to grips with before they can really understand insight. Yes. So let's jump to the uh, section. You've got a chapter on the art and science of insight, which Mm. is... Very rich. Uh, I wanted to quote from um, something here that really got my attention. You write on page 106, Often we over-rely on the immersion process to generate the longed-for blue-sky thinking. There is a deep and enduring love of brainstorming in the business world, especially in pursuit of this cutting-edge thinking. Nonetheless, a large body of evidence suggests that brainstorms often prove sterile in the pursuit of radical novelty if they rely purely on immersion. All too often, I have found brainstorming is devoted to data dumpage and sharing rather than the process of creative thinking. So what should people keep in mind if they are doing a brainstorm or what are some of the other ways to to make more of uh yeah 
I'm just I'm just wondering whether everyone listening is going to think of me as some very angry old man <laughs> um, being played by I don't know Robert De Niro maybe I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, it's funny because again I like you probably Douglas having been in ad agencies and working with clients, I've I've had my fair share of brainstorms. Um, and a lot of them, they're not really brainstorms. They're people coming in and talking for half an hour, each person, and then you come up with something, and then everyone's too frightened to say what they really want to do. And I, I loved them when I was at Jay Walter, because as a young assistant account exec, there was always a pizza or two there, and they would do them at lunch. It was the research department. So, um, you know, and they would yeah. ask us questions like, when I say this, what do you think of? And I would try to answer something. Um, but, but it was all about the food. Yeah, you're trying to answer something with a, a piece of deep stuffed pizza in your mouth. Yeah, you know, come come for the brainstorm stage for the pizza. <laughs> um, I, I've I've been I've been there as well. But you know, um, just to interject, there are uh, you're not an angry old guy, but I've I've seen this so many times that I think it's as if you're saying I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. After a while, everyone <laughs> in various lines of work just sees the mistakes, and it's like seeing good yes. food go to waste. And I can remember yes. once a. a some client needed some big ad campaign. They needed it like in a week or something. And I remember this uh, creative director said, uh, tell the client good work takes time. Theirs will be ready in a minute. Or, <laughs> or they would say, you can't rush a cake, but it was like, uh, it, it was just, it, it kind of, uh, you know, made my hair hurt. Some of these things. So when I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, yes, yes, I've experienced that as well. I know what he's talking about. Yeah, did I say that the book is also a form of therapy? <laughs> yes, this is clearly turning um, into a support group, yeah. <laughs> at least for you and me. Yeah, old grumpy old ad men. No, going, I mean going back to to the point about brainstorms. So um, yeah, I just come back from uh, I think I mentioned Barcelona. I did another one in Berlin. I only go to places that begin with B. That's my rule. This is your B phase. It's my B phase. Yeah. Um, so I have my A phase, and I'm working my way through. Um, and then this work, you this week you were working with the BBC, as I recall. So it is. It's, it literally has been that. I've been it's in Berlin, Barcelona, BBC. Yeah. I know it's slightly weird, slightly spooky. <laughs> Um, but my point about brainstorms, when I run them, I always try and keep as far away from uh, immersion as possible. I don't think you want to th flood people with lots of facts and information, especially if it's stuff that most of that people in that room know. So for me, it is about trying to be as creative and lateral and left field as possible. So without giving anything specific away for obvious confidentiality reasons, one of the areas that I wanted to explore with this client um, which is a pharmaceutical client. Um, I, I wanted to look at sort of different areas and different sort of meanings and semiotics. And with a couple of people, one of whom is a very good editor, uh, we just put together various film clips. So there was a whole section about films by Richard Curtis, uh, you know, rom-coms, and about passion and emotion and sadness because I wanted to explore these emotions. So that's what I did. I just showed them, you know, film clips and got people to react and say, okay, how does this make you feel? And, and how does this relate to the meanings that we're trying to create for the brand? So it's trying to move away from this, again, very factual, literal, arithmocracy way of often running brainstorms and making them genuinely creative. Because if all you're doing is having, if you like, a meeting, but with nicer pizza, mm -hmm. that's not really a brainstorm for me. So it is about trying to be lateral, to make new connections, to use different forms of stimulus material, etc. Before we wrap up, I want to mention at the, at the end of the book, you've got a 
a section on all the characteristics of a of a culture mm. uh, that that where where insights uh, thrive. And yes, then there's a a section on the beliefs or yes credo, as a classicist might say. Obviously, yes. And I want you to talk about this is on page one thirty three for those playing the home game. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about jumbo jets and mayonnaise, shall we? <laughs> Explain what you mean when you write that insight is complex, not complicated. Yeah, um, in one of my books, Incitations, I think, also available. Um, wherever fine books are sold. Wherever fine books uh, by ranty old men are found. <laughs> um yeah, I, I, one of the things I wanted to pick up on was it's a really interesting quote by a complexity theorist from, I think, South Africa called Paul Sillias. Mm-hmm. And it's a fantastic analogy. And I've used it a number of times. Um, and I wrote about it, as I say, in citations, but I just sort of adapted it here. Because the example he says, he says there's a difference between complicated and complex. So he says a jumbo jet is complicated. It's got lots of different bits in it, lots of different parts. But if you sort of take all the parts apart, you can put them together and you still get a jumbo jet. But mayonnaise is complex. You put together you know, the egg whites, the oil, whatever else it is that goes together, but you can't take them apart. Once it's mayonnaise, you can't take the parts apart and put them back. And... It, he uses it as a, as a way of demonstrating what complexity theory is, that things emerge. So in the same way, you can take a hydrogen molecule, an oxygen molecule, but you put them together and they create water. Separately, there's no wateriness in either of them, but they create water when you put them together. Now, I, I use that in the book to say, I think that's what insight is, really. Insight, I think, is complex. It doesn't come from just putting bits together and gluing them. There has to be some sort of spark. There has to be something new that's created that once it's there, you almost can't see where it came from. More like a chemical reaction. Like, exactly like a chemical reaction or a connection, which is the word I keep coming back to. Mm-hmm. So I'm a great fan of trying to use analogies and metaphors and, and things in the books because, again, I just think it's a way of – of avoiding just resorting to sort of jargon about, you know, strategy and leveraging and all that sort of stuff. So I really like the complex, complicated way of thinking about it because it it just gets you to do exactly what we said before an insight should do, which is to go, okay, that's funny. I hadn't thought of it like that way. Mm. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Uh, Also, when we're talking about what are the characteristics uh, of of a good insight spotter and also what actually insight is about um one of the characteristics i talk about in the book and it's it's in all the books as well is my i'm obsessed with humor and comedy and i know douglas you share that interest but <laughs> sadly yes um, sadly well, i know sad comedians yes. um, our poor long-suffering wives <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know it's, t- it's a terrible burden to bear yeah, that somebody yeah. has to but I've, I've written a lot about wit and humor. And again, as somebody that's obsessed with language, wit in English has two meanings. We talk about wit as intelligence. He's lost his wits. You know, he's got a lot of wit about him. But mm-hmm. also wit is humor. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's a real connection about that. It's an Anglo-Saxon word, witten, I think. Um, so for me, again, part of insight is really linked to the idea of comedy and humor. So one of the things I think I say in the book, and I've said it in, in, else, in elsewhere as well, is for me, insight is like a punchline. It's like when you get to a joke and suddenly you, you get a punchline. So two fish in a tank. 
one says to the other, how do you drive this thing? <laughs> Just waiting for the... I, I, I see what you did there. Yeah. You see what I do there. Um, and if anyone wants a really great Greek word, and I'm sure you do, in Greek it's called paraprostokian, which means where you take the opposite way. So a joke goes in a particular direction and then suddenly it steers you somewhere else, which is the punchline. And being serious about comedy for a moment, I, I've often thought that's, again, quite a good analogy for how insight works. You're going in one direction, but then suddenly it takes you somewhere else unexpected. And with humor, you go, oh, that's funny, which brings us back to the Asimov quote. But also it opens up your eyes to see something different. So for me, humor, wit, insight, again, they're all linked together. Right. And the Asimov quote is that that's where when you when you or you mentioned earlier, when someone stumbles upon an insight, it's mm. it's surprising or it's yes. it's funny. Yeah, two things. One is, again, as a, as a good behavioral economist, um, one of the big six emotions is surprise. Um, and I don't think we mentioned it very much, but surprise is the emotion, mm -hmm. the absolute mm -hmm. key emotion at the heart of, of insight. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, and again, it, it plays on the two meanings, the Asimov quote that I, I mentioned. When we say that's funny, it reminds us the word funny has two meanings, funny ha-ha and funny strange. <laughs> so again, I'm just interested in the way that our language and our way of thinking around humor seems to have a lot to tell us about what insight is. So that's one of the areas, again, that I've, I find fascinating. And also, if you're talking about insight and comedy and humor, you know, it's entertaining. It's, it's enjoyable for people to talk about as well. Yes, you're right. For me, the Venn diagram of humor, wit, and surprise is crucial to the understanding and creation of insights. And then you've quoted George Orwell. Mm. Uh, where he wrote, uh, this is in a 1945 essay, Funny But Not Vulgar, which has never been said about me. Uh, <laughs> he wrote, a thing is funny when in some way that is not actually offensive or frightening, it upsets the established order. Every joke mm. is a tiny revolution. If you had yes. to define humor in a single phrase, you might define it as dignity sitting on a tin tack. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are. I've actually read the various books about the theory of comedy, and one of them is actually called expectation violation theory. <laughs> I um, love it. I love it. Which, yeah, I know it sort of it does what it says on the tin. Um, and again, because some of the tr the trouble is, there's a, again a famous quote from I think an American th uh, thinker, or writer, or theorist called H. L. Mencken. Mm -hmm. Because often, as with the, the goldfish joke, you should never try and explain a joke, as you know. And Mencken said. Explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. Not many people are interested and the frog dies. <laughs> right. um, so I'm I, always aware of trying to sort of talk about the theory of comedy. Because once you start doing that, people go, well, yeah, but that's just not funny. So, again, I think it's either in this book or the one I'm writing at the moment, um, where I'm having a go at, you know, economists and statisticians. You know, the joke is the statistician who dies by drowning in a lake that is on average three feet deep. <laughs> Right. Um, because wit often and humor often shows us things that we sort of know, but either we can't say or it just shows us in a way that creates that response. So, again, all of those things for me, as you say, Douglas, they're all playing in the same sort of in the same game. If you yeah, like. yeah, so true. One other thing I want to ask you about that I think would be really helpful for uh, listeners Mm -hmm. is uh, one of the beliefs that you write about in that section is to flip assumptions. And so mm. explain what you do in the workshop to facilitate this. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I do run these workshops. Again, if anyone's interested, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. And if um, you hire him, please mention that you heard him on the Marketing Week exactly. podcast. Because there might exactly. be a, a bottle of Tazgul uh, beer for me. <laughs> Yeah, a wee bottle, a wee dram, a wee dram for you, Douglas. Yeah, so what I do is I run these workshops called Surfacing Assumptions. And it's it's something, again, that sort of plays into the insight, behavioral economics, etc., which is whether it's working with a client or whether it's working with a, an agency that's just started working with a client, I'll often say to them, okay, let's explicitly write out the assumptions that you have about your market, your brand, your target audience, their beliefs, their behavior, the pricing, whatever it might be. Let's write them explicitly. I would think that that opens up quite a, a flood of uh, of answers. It does. And sometimes, and this is the whole point of the exercise, sometimes it's, it's very enlightening and, and actually slightly scary for clients. Because I'll say to them, again, I used to work in the car market. And it's many years ago now, and it's probably not as bad. But I sat with uh, a client I mentioned, I think, and said to him, okay, let's write one of the assumptions. And I said, okay, I'll start. One of the assumptions is that all cars are bought, are bought by men. And they said, well, that's clearly not true. So we had some video um, of the car dealers. And we were allowed to do this for various reasons. And we, we sent in people to ask about a car. And there was a couple, sort of a young girl and a young boy. And in like nine times out of ten, the guy who was selling the car, the car dealer, would approach the man, even if it was a car for the woman. And we said, look, this is the these are assumptions. It's simply that there are so many assumptions, and if you want to use the word biases, that we have as humans, but also in marketing or sales, that we have to examine those assumptions. And once we examine them, then we can flip them over and then see what insight will emerge if we change them. So that's how I use that particular exercise. Oh, that's great. I have to laugh. Years ago, my wife was, she wanted to buy a truck to pull her horse trailer. And she had investigated. She knew what she wanted. And for some reason, mm -hmm. I had to be there when we were buying, because we were both going to, both names were going to be put on the title or something like that. Mm -hmm. And we go in there and the guy keeps looking at me the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> and he finally said, God, what am I doing? She's the one buying this <laughs> <laughs> but it was so out of sorts for him to, you know, be selling a, a pickup truck to the you know, or talking to the to the wife instead of the the husband. I said, look, I, I'm just here to <laughs> sign the papers along with her. Yeah, it is. It is what I mean. Obviously, we're all being told now about um, you know unconscious bias and understanding our implicit attitudes and stuff like that. But um, it is it just it's a normal human facet. Again, behavioral economics. Right. There are so many things that we just don't. Our brain makes all these assumptions and makes all these decisions and compartmentalizes and frames things uh, without us knowing most of the time. So it's only when we look at them and think, oh, actually, you know, I didn't, I didn't even realize that I did that <laughs> right. at an individual level, let alone, you know, at a company level or a you know, marketing level. So that's part of what that exercise is about, is, is just getting people to realize that we have those assumptions about the brand or market and then look at them and actually expose what might happen if we change them. Well, Taz, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think at the end of the day, the insight is creative. So feed your brain. You know, feed your brain with what I call ESIs, external serendipitous influences, because it needs time and space. You're not going to get insights simply by staring long and longingly 
uh, at data. So please, please, please look at insight as part of and aligned to the whole process of creativity. That oh, would be, I think. yes. And get out of the office, get away from the computer. <laughs> yeah. And for all the marketers, go on a sales call or just go spend time with, with customers. That's where so many of the, the great insights Absolutely. come from, in, at least in my, in my career. So what's one thing a listener can do today other than that uh, to put in action one of the ideas from your book? Perhaps until the book arrives. Yeah, I, I think one of the things, and again, we haven't really talked about some of the other books, because I'm so interested in storytelling, mm-hmm. um, it is on my sort of summary. There's a visual summary, as you said, at the end of the book about all the different things that you have to be. So you have to be a first-class noticer. You have to be a, a wanderer. You have to be risk-prone, etc. You have to I- be impertinent. Witty. Impertinent, yeah. yes. Um, and the quote I use is, is someone is someone said, you know, all science comes from asking impertinent questions, yes. not pertinent, but impertinent. Which may be so a misunderstood think, term. Yeah, it is. And again, it, it, it's I, I like playing with the words. It's you know, not rudeness. No, no. Yeah. It's if something is pertinent, it, it, it relates to something. <laughs> and if it's impertinent, it doesn't. So for me, that is one of the, the key things, to, which is and again, it's a it's a thing that children do. Mm-hmm. It's sort of beaten out of, well, not literally, beaten out of children, which is, you know, they ask why all the time. Why is this? And, and I think sometimes in order to to be more of a sort of insight prone person, you know, ask those impertinent questions. When I was, again, working with creative people, I would often bring them along because I knew that if I asked a question, the client might say, well, why are you asking that? You should know it. But if a creative person asked that question, they would answer them because they oh they they're not expected to know that, and often they would give an answer, which was much more revealing. So find ways of, of asking impertinent questions. That would be one of my interesting yes offering. And uh, I also you, you talk about children can be impertinent, but I've also found new mm. employees are uh, very valuable at asking impertinent questions because they're like, well, why are yes. you doing it that way? I, I always found their their fresh perspective. It's like I, I it was very perishable because <laughs> after a while they would just get used to the way things are done, and they would say, well, "Why are we Why are we doing it that way?" And I remember there was a story of a, a former client. Uh, they built interstate highways, roads, you know, all that sort of thing, parking lots and everything, asphalt mm-hmm. company, and the way that the state of Virginia was uh, dishing out. Uh, projects had changed and these this company had an asphalt plant in another market and they they couldn't really use it and so they were trying to figure out how to do things anyway the ceo was briefing you know all the employees on what's going because it's an employee owned company yep and i'm leaving out some of the details but this brand new employee who they refer to as a shovel operator uh <laughs> he said well mr patterson why don't you just sell that plant and no one had thought of that. Mm. <laughs> Here he was, a brand new employee. He said, well, why don't you just yeah. sell it? And it was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's, that's, that's funny. That's, you know, what, what an insight. And so, uh, yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was being uh, very valuably uh, impertinent. Interestingly, I, just to go back to something we talked about, jargon. When I do jargon exercises, and I did one with um, an electronics brand yesterday, um, what I often find people saying in a safe space, if you like, is they'll say exactly the same thing, which is, you know, I was I was in this company for three months or six months before I even dared ask what that word meant. 
Oh. Or I even dared ask, why do we use that word? It sounds like it's jargon. Because it becomes self-reinforcing. It becomes, jargon becomes a, a privileged language oh. for, for an in-group. Mm-hmm. And again, that's one of the things that we have to fight against to come up with insight is you can't have in-groups and out-groups. Everyone has to share the same ideas and the same, same language. And often jargon becomes sort of like an elite a form of elitist language. Mm-hmm. So again, I think that's where all those things, again, sort of like link up, really. And an additional tragedy is that so much of that jargon leaches into their external communications. Clients often say to me, well, we don't really use that. Okay, I'll give you an example. I'll actually I'll ask you this question. I don't know how we're doing on time, but anyway. I bought a lot of extra audio tape at Costco today. We're fine. Good, that's fine. And I'm not doing anything apart from going on holiday. So so I did this exercise, and it was an open group. And um, I had somebody who announced that she was from a rail safety organization in the UK. So basically ensuring that trains, rolling stock, were safe. Okay. And I put the people into groups and said, you know, come up with examples. And she said, look, I'm too embarrassed, but I'm going to give this one. So I said, what is it? And she said, it's railhead adhesion. And everyone looked around and said, sorry? Yeah, I said, well, the engineers call it railhead adhesion. It's one of the major problems for delays on the, on the railways in the UK. And everyone went, what is this? And she said, it's an expression that everyone, certainly in the UK, will understand. I don't know about um, anyone else listening. The term that we use is leaves on the line. But the, the engineers called it railhead adhesion because the leaves get stuck into a part of the wheel, which is called the railhead. And I said, this is a ludicrous expression. And she said, oh, well, don't worry. We only use it internally. So three seconds later, I went onto a website and said, no, nope, there it is. It was being used to external face. You know, consumers were seeing the term railhead adhesion. And she said, oh, dear. And that's where it just becomes, you think, why are you doing this? It's just... Sorry. <laughs> well, let me ask you, uh, Taz, looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? I'm, I mean, I'm going to be slightly boring and say that a lot of, of my life has been inspired by the classics. So I love the Iliad, the Odyssey, Aristophanes, Cicero. I, I mean, just the great stories, the history, the way that they write, the way that they talk. A lot of it comes from there. Um, but also, we've men- we mentioned some of this in, in the book today. Um, even I'm not clearly not a scientist. I've loved reading really great science communicators. So I've loved reading Richard Dawkins. I've loved reading Daniel Dennett because these people make what could be very complicated and and very difficult concepts. They make they make them interesting and exciting and joyful. So I'm always on the lookout for really good science communicators. Carlo Rovelli. I'm reading his book on a an ancient Greek uh, thinker called Anaximander, which I'm guessing most people won't be reading. But he's, he's again, just a fantastic writer. He just writes beautifully. He's, he's a physicist, but he's got the art. He's got the gift of writing for a, for a, a lay audience. And it's, it's a joy reading someone who can do that. You know, it's interesting. Years ago, I was interviewing an author, Perry Marshall, and uh, I asked him a similar question. And he said, you know, I try to read uh, as many books as I can that were from before the era of the printing press. Because mm. <laughs> if they yeah. are still around, you know they were good. <laughs> yeah. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Like 
my guess is that you're probably working on another one. I am. I literally am working on book six, which is going to be about sort of emotional influence and behavioral economics. Um, but I've always got books on the on the go. And as I say, I'll be have, going off to Italy in a couple of days. Um, there's a book that I started reading called How Minds Change by David McCraney, which is a really good mixture of academic, science, um, current examples of behavior change campaigns, uh, especially in the States and especially to do with particular social policies. And I've started reading it and it's absolutely fascinating. And I recommend to anyone who's interested in behavior change. Also, um, there's a guy who's actually Welsh called Dean Burnett, and he's written a number of books about the brain. The first one was called The Idiot Brain, which is always a good title. Oh, he asked to put my picture on that cover. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Okay. Obviously, I'll. He <laughs> could make. You didn't make the final cut. Yeah. Well, there was some uh, cost issues, you know. Cost issues. He, he couldn't afford it. But what I like about him, as well as being a practicing neuroscientist, he's a stand-up, a comedian, and <laughs> again, you read the book. And not only is it is it very good about the brain, but some of the examples, it's funny, obviously, but some of the analogies and examples he uses about parts of the brain, for example, you just think, why has no one else said it like that? It's such a, again, a clever way of talking about the brain and what it does, rather than some sort of very dry academic scientific treatise. And he's written a, re- a book recently called Emotional Ignorance, which I also recommend. Uh, which was written during COVID. So those are some of the things that oh, I've wow. I've got on my to-do list. Wow, he sounds like a, a, he'd be a great guest. And you say he's uh, he lives in Wales? Yeah, he's Welsh. Dean Burnett. Yeah. Um, not quite the same name as you, but with an N. Yeah, but look him up. Yeah, he's written, I think, three books now, but um, very interesting guy. Oh, excellent. Well, that's why that question is uh, very popular with me and uh, with the listener. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, uh, your LinkedIn profile, your, your Twitter account. And the reason part of the reason we're doing that is to make it easy for folks to find what we were talking about, but also so that you, dear listener, can do me a big favor and reach out in some way to Taz, congratulate him on this book, thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and putting up with pretty stupid jokes, send him a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, but guests really do, seriously, every week I hear from guests who said, hey, I've heard from some of your listeners, you know, they've got good questions there. And I mean, come on, Taz seems like the kind of guy that would actually respond to you. So, Guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, which seems to be Apple Podcasts these days, but also Spotify, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is The Insight Book, Enhancing Your Creativity by Learning to See Things Differently. The author is Taz Tazgal. Taz, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. It's been a blast, and I think we could have spoken for another couple of hours. Your insight serves you well. 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.